we hear the Christmas story again and again and again that sometimes we tend to just let it be one ear out the other, perhaps missing some of the poignant details and their true meaning. And there's just a few things that stand out in the account of Jesus' birth that we have heard today in these early hours of Christmas morning that we can reflect on. And first is, why Bethlehem? Joseph didn't live there. Mary didn't live there. Jesus wasn't going to grow up there. Well, on the one hand, it looks like they're simply fulfilling uh, the Roman emperor's will that everybody has to go to the city of their birth in order to be enrolled in the census, which, of course, means they're going to levy more taxes on them. Could Octavius Caesar have known that he was actually fulfilling God's plan, that the Old Testament prophets said the Messiah would come from Bethlehem, not Nazareth? And so it had to be so that they went there. Joseph taking a heavily pregnant Mary on that journey, which would have been arduous for her and for her unborn child, only that the prophecy might be fulfilled. But Bethlehem is perfect. Not only is it a royal city, since that's the city of David's birth, but it's also the case that Bethlehem in Hebrew meant the house of bread. Where was Jesus placed in the manger? Uh, that's a feeding trough. The house of bread, the feeding trough. He's the word made flesh, but already from his birth, God and Jesus are already planning that we should look to him for food, for sustenance, not just of a spiritual value, but also physical. God wants us to be thinking Eucharistically about the feast of his son's birth. And that's why it's so appropriate that we begin this Christmas day with the Mass where the Eucharist is celebrated. But why a manger? He's a king. King should be born in the best of circumstances. And yet for Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, there's not even any room at the end. Well, from a practical standpoint, Bethlehem was simply overwhelmed with all these people that had been born there. It was their ancestral home, but it then moved away. And now they're all forced to come back at the same time to be enrolled in that census. Yes, it's a village more than a town, certainly not a city, and it's just overcrowded. But how metaphorical that there was no room for Mary and Joseph and the unborn Jesus at the end, and how little room people make for Jesus in their hearts still to this day. 2,000 years later. But it was perfectly appropriate, the humble circumstances that we see before us, because even though he is the king of kings, the prince of peace, and his is the greatest story ever told, Jesus did not come to save the worldly, the wealthier, the wise. He came to save the last, the lowest, and the least. He was born poor. He lived poor. He died poor. Born in someone else's smelly barn, buried in someone else's borrowed tomb, Jesus owned nothing. And yet everything he had, he gave to us. Everything he had was given to him by the Father. Everything he had from the Father, he gave to us, including his very life, reminding us that he is born to die, that we might live. Suggesting that the crib and the cross, it's as if they were cut from the same piece of wood. But along with the humble circumstances of this king's birth, what about the order in which people were allowed to follow the light of that star to go open their treasures and pay their respects. Should not a king first be received in audience by other kings upon this news? It was the shepherds who were the last, truly on the fringes of society, as they were never able to leave their flocks untended. They were always far from town, the last ones to know anything. But as proof of what Jesus would later say, the last shall be first, and the first shall be last, those who were usually the last to know anything about anything not only have been able to receive this news, 
but told to go and proclaim it. But what of the shepherds' reaction? They reacted like so many other people did. Fear. Almost the same type of fear that the risen Christ would encounter in his apostles. That sometimes our faith is too beautiful for words, and sometimes it's so powerful it can't frighten us. Fear and trembling. But Gabriel has the same message for the shepherds that he had for three other key figures in the Christmas story. Zechariah, the high priest father of John the Baptist. The same advice that Gabriel gave to Mary at the Annunciation and to Joseph in a dream. He gives to the shepherds. Do not be afraid. If we were to count up between the Old and the New Testament, we would see that the Bible has 365 different references to that same idea. Do not be afraid. One for every day of the year. If that's the great message of Christmas, then it's an appropriate one and a good one for us because we spend so much of our life being afraid. And I'm not just talking about fear of snakes and spiders and crowds and foreign films, but rather being afraid of how we're going to pay the bills, being afraid of what's going to happen to my health, being afraid of what's occurring with my loved one, what's the crisis within my family, the crisis in our country, in our world, the economy, immigration, Morality, immorality, you name it. We're afraid of many things and far more than just the dark. The message of Christmas is we don't have to be afraid anymore because in the darkest night of winter, a light led shepherds and angels and kings to a manger in Bethlehem. That little baby conquers the darkness and drives our fears away, filling us with faith. And once we are freed from the fear of death, as he came to conquer, then there's nothing else that's worth being afraid of. And so, my friends, as we begin this Christmas day, indeed, as we start this Christmas season, let us remind ourselves that God sent his Son, born to die, that we might live. He who made us in his image and likeness has now become one like us in every way, so that one day we will all be like him and be with him forever in his kingdom.